You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and, and turn there. We're coming to a close in our series on uh, 1 Corinthians. We have chapter 15, and then chapter 16 is the, is the last chapter of the book, so we'll be transitioning into another series uh, here pretty soon. But before Paul closes out this letter, he has some extremely important things that he wants to say to the Corinthian church and obviously to us as well. To get into what Paul was talking about today, about, I think it was last week, I was talking to one of my sons, and he came to me, he's like, Daddy, I'm bored, right? And I'm like, what do you mean you're bored? You got a million toys, how can you be bored? And he was like, I'm bored. I'm, I'm like, well, go play with like your, your, your Beyblades and your Legos. Like, go, go play with those. Like, you should be good if you just go play with those. And he was like, he said, well, Dad, I don't want to play with those. And I was like, what do you mean you don't want to? What do you mean you don't want to play with them? You're a kid, all you do is play. Like, that's the job description. You go in your room and you play. Like, that's what you're supposed to do. What do you mean you don't want to play with them? He said, well, Dad, I don't, I don't like those toys anymore. I was like, that was your favorite toy. The Beyblades was your favorite toy. You got it for Christmas. He said, well, Dad, when you have a toy that's your favorite toy, when you've had it for a long time, you get new toys, and it's not your favorite toy anymore. You don't like it as much. So now I'm bored. And I was like, first of all, I just wanted to pull back and, and applaud the, the philosophical concepts that he came up with. <laughs> but also it made me think about myself. It made me think about how I can have a tendency that when something loses the, the luster, so to speak, right, when something's new, that was something that, that, I was, that I was loving, just really excited about, and then I've had it for a little while, now it's, uh, it's not as big of a deal. And so for my son, it was, I mean, literally, when he got these toys for Christmas, he was jumping up and down with excitement, like, like pure joy all over him. And I was like, I'm just bored with that. I don't, I don't want it anymore. Do you relate to this? I believe, partially at least because of the society that we currently live in, where I have access to so many different types of entertainment, like millions of different forms of entertainment, I have access to like that just by pulling up my phone. I believe sometimes now I take for granted anything that might still be good, but because I can just get something new and find that excitement of just having something that's new, that the thing that was old that I used to be extremely excited about, I used to really love, Meh, it's all right. I mean, it's fine, but, it's, you know, I'm not excited about it anymore. This can be very true for us spiritually as well. Have the things of God that used to move you become cold, bland, dry to you? I'm talking about the realities of who God is that used to get you excited, that you, you love to talk about it, you love to think about it, but now it's more, meh. Jesus loves me. Meh. Heard a million times. The things of the faith that, that you would find so much strength and hope and life and peace in. Does it feel stale now? Do you have this desire? I need something new. I need to learn something new, right? This, this old stuff that I, that I used to know and used to love when I first became a believer or whenever I was most excited about God. That was great then, but now I feel like I need something New. I believe a society that's so built around entertainment, and not just entertainment, but new entertainment, has begun to affect the way that we relate to God. 
Is it still good enough that you just get to be with Jesus? Is that still good enough to excite you and give you joy and give you strength and give you life? Or do, or do you need that something, something new, something extra, something a little more deep than just the fact that I get to be with Jesus and go through this life and then go to be with him forever in, all, in eternity in paradise in the next life? Is that still good enough? Do we need something shiny, something newer? In this passage today, Paul's going to remind the Corinthians of some true things that they already know. They already know that it's true. But from Paul's perspective, that does not diminish the importance, the value, and the power of the message that they've heard a million times. I believe today for us, it's a discipline. It's a skill. It's a skill because of how society is set up that we can go to the same thing over and over again and still love it and still be excited about it and still find joy. And I believe it's a discipline and a skill that we must pursue. Paul pushes the Corinthians towards this. We'll start at verse 1. 1 Corinthians 15:1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you first received, in which you stand. So again, Paul, is, he's bringing this letter to a conclusion. He just got off of spiritual gifts, which are, which are important, but he comes to this and he says, I, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, past tense, and on which you currently stand, present tense. When you hear the word of God preached, are you only really intrigued when a preacher starts saying something deep that you didn't know about? Are you really only intrigued when, when, he, when he's telling you something and giving you some type of revelation on the scripture that you didn't currently understand? Is that what most excites you or is Jesus himself good enough? Are we so infatuated with newness? Has our culture taught us that something is really only exciting if it's new, so much so that the, the, the foundational heard it a million times truths of God now seem a little more irrelevant to us, a little less important, a little less intriguing for us. Do you feel like you're still being fed the word of God when God's word is proclaimed if you knew everything that was already taught, that was taught that day? Do you still feel fed? Do you still, do you still feel like you, you got what you needed for growth and maturity in the Lord, or do you feel like you need something new? Do you value the reminders? Paul begins verse 1, now I would remind you, brothers, do you value the reminders? Same thing for when you study the Bible. Can you read the same text over and over again and still find joy and still know there's still more life to be found in this passage, in this verse? In an age when so much is at our fingertips, we must be disciplined to trying to seek out the value of the reminders of what we need to be reminded of. I mean, just on a practical level, let's be real. We ain't doing everything we already know to do. Sometimes we all about that new word. Okay, well, you stuck with the old word? You doing, you doing what, you, what you already know to do? We have this infatuation with new that actually doesn't make sense. Paul was talking about this, this gospel that they have already heard, just so we're on the same page on what he means when he says gospel. The gospel is the good news of, what, of the work that Christ has done, is doing, and will do to free us from sin, or to save the world, to save his creation from sin. And it is the message of salvation 
because of the work of God. That is what he's talking about when he's referring to, when he uses the word gospel. Now, why is this important? At the end of verse 1, he says that the same gospel that was first preached to them, that they had already received, past tense, is the gospel on which they currently stand, present tense. The same message that you believed in when you first received Christ, when you first placed, placed faith in him, is the same message that now gives you the ability to stand in him, with him, as you continue as a follower of Jesus. Paul is saying that what gets you started on the Christian journey is the same message that sustains you throughout the journey. The same message that called you out of your sin is the same message that empowers you to continue to say no to your sin over and over and over and over again. Let's read verse 1 and verse 2 again. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, past tense, in which you stand, present tense, and by which you are being saved, present tense, that continues on. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I feel like sometimes we don't hold fast because we're looking to grab onto something new. We don't want to hold fast to what we already know. The, the, the growth of the, of the Christian, generally speaking, is learning and understanding the gospel, holding fast to it, embracing it, and living in light of it, not this continuous grasping for something that is new. So Paul says, I remind you of the gospel that I've preached to you. He says, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The same gospel that saved you, past tense, is continuing to save you, present tense. What do I mean by that? Since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, everything in, in the earth got corrupted. We got corrupted physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. The, the earth, the, the very material matter of creation became corrupted. The Bible says that the earth is now under a curse. And salvation... It's God's work to save us from sin. Sin messed everything up. Salvation is God making everything right again. And to understand what Paul is saying here, we need to make sure we have a good understanding of salvation. I'm bringing up the tenses for a reason, because I think we have a misunderstanding of what salvation in the Bible actually is. There's three tenses of salvation in the Bible. The first one is that we have been saved. We see this language in many places. We see it in Ephesians chapter 2 very clearly. You can write that down. Don't have, don't have time to turn there today. We have been saved. We have been saved from the guilt of sin. We have been saved from the condemnation of sin. We, we call that justification if you're in the theological terms. We have been saved from the spiritual death that we received because of sin. We call that regeneration, right? Depending on the church you grew up in, you might call that being born again. We have been saved. This happens when we become believers. We have been saved. And then as we see in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, it says we are being saved saved. We are being saved from the power of sin. We call that sanctification. Jesus says, he who sins is a slave to sin. He says, but who the Son sets free is free what? So the sin is not just something that we do. Sin is something that exerts power over us. It enslaves, it controls us and causes us to do things that we don't want to do. And our progressive salvation, our ongoing present tense salvation is God continuing to free us from the chains. 
continue, continuing to break the shackles that, that cause us to want to continue to do what is against God and what is against what he created us to do and who he created us to be. We are continuing to be saved. The same gospel that saved us in the past continues to set us free from bondage to sin. The third tense, we won't get into it a whole lot today, but just so you, we're clear on what we mean when we say salvation, the Bible also says we will be saved. You can see that in Acts chapter 15. Don't turn there now. You can write it down and go back to it for your own reference if you desire to do so. We will be saved from the presence and all effects of sin when we go on to glory to be with him. We call this glorification. It's a theological term, glorification. When we go on to glory, when the saving work will be complete. For all the pain, the sickness, the suffering, the depression, the anxiety, the family drama that you're dealing with right now. Everything that causes any amount of hurt or sorrow or tears will be taken away. Why? Because salvation is God freeing his people and his creation from all of the effects of sin. That's what salvation is. Now let's get back to Paul's point. This gospel that they placed faith in that had already saved them from the guilt of their sin, this same message, he wants to remind them because it is continuing to save them, allowing them to stand firm and free them from their slavery to sin. Again, biblically, the reason we keep on sinning is not simply because we like to do things that God calls sinful, but it's because sin exerts a power and a force over us and leads us and forces us in a way to walk away from God, to live in sin. When sin became into, came into the world, it began to exert power over us and control us. Well, I think it's important what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He said in, in the message... The gospel message, the message of the salvation of God, it is empowered by the Holy Spirit when it is proclaimed, when it is believed in, when it is embraced to actually set us free. That the proclaiming of the good news of Jesus, I'm talking about that message you've heard a million times already. Paul is saying it is, power, it is empowered by the Holy Spirit to save us. He calls it the very power of God. The very power of God to save us. I hope you realize that the gospel, the message of God's salvation is empowered by God to set you free from slavery to your worst enemy. That without the news of salvation, without the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only are you enslaved, you're enslaved by your worst enemy, by the thing that could do more damage to you than anything else. The Bible says we're enslaved to it and the thing that sets us free is the gospel. Is that same message that we've heard over and over again that can begin to feel dull, that we can begin to be numb to as followers of Jesus. It is empowered by the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to set us free from our worst enemy. I hope you have a separate category for the gospel than you, than you have for things that entertain you. I hope you have a separate category for the gospel than things that just make you feel good, Right? Yes, things that entertain us and make us feel good might excite us, but I hope you have a, a separate category that's saying this isn't entertainment. This isn't something I'm going to just to try to make myself feel good. This is the very power of God that I need to walk in the freedom that he has given me. I hope we have a different category. 
Because if not, you'll take the most important message that's ever been told, the best news your ears have ever heard, the only thing that can set you free from your worst enemy, and you'll say, uh, I don't know, I want something new. I don't know, give me something shiny. Give me something deep, something I don't already know. Give me some Greek words, some Hebrew. Give me something that I, that I don't, didn't already know when I came in here. And we are harming ourselves. We're doing so much damage to ourselves spiritually because we treat the gospel like it's entertainment. We treat the gospel like it's Netflix. Oh, I've already watched that. I've already watched that. I've already watched that. I've already watched that. Oh, what about this? Oh, I haven't seen this before. This seems exciting. Yeah, let's watch this. I hope we have a separate category. I hope you value every single time your ears are blessed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed. I hope you don't think that when we proclaim the good, and I hope you, for the Christians in the room, I hope you don't think that every time we proclaim the good news of salvation of Jesus, that it's for the non-Christians in the room. I hope that you don't believe it's for the, oh, that's the stuff that I already knew, I already accepted it. You must be saying that for the people who don't already know Jesus. One day they'll get like me and they'll place faith in Jesus. That'll be great. I hope you don't think that it's for the person beside you, right? Life group leaders, I hope you don't ever believe that there is one person in your life group that needs the gospel more than you do. I hope you don't believe that there's anybody walking the face of the planet that needs the good news of the salvation of Jesus Christ more than you do. So Paul, in this letter, he's addressed a number of issues with them, but he continues to remind them of the gospel of their salvation. I think it's very important that we notice how Paul, even in this letter, but really broadly throughout all of his writings, how he often calls people to turn away from sin. That's an important thing to know. What does he do? When he's calling people to turn away from sin and turn to God, what does he do? Does he just say, hey, man, y'all need to get together. Y'all just need to try harder. Y'all don't care enough. Y'all need to care more. Is that what he does? Let's go back to chapter 6, verse 11. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Now, this is right after Paul has told them the kind of people that they used to be as he's calling them out of that and calling them to walk in the newness of life that, that God has given them. And this is what he says. And such were some of you. So that's referring to a list that he's already given them of, of the way they used to live, different types of idolatry and things like that. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. Were sanctified means you, you were set apart for the purposes of God. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You've been declared righteous by God before him. This is how he calls them out of their lifestyle of sin that they were trying to continue to embrace. He said, you've been washed by God. You've been justified. You've been declared righteous. You've been sanctified by God. He's already set you apart. He talks to them about the new identity, identity that they have because they have placed faith in Jesus Christ. And this is how he calls them out of their sin. Remember who you are because of the gospel. Remember who God has made you to be. He does the same thing if we continue on in chapter 6, after he's talking to them about sexual immorality and sexual sin, as he's calling them out of it. Check out what he does, verses 19 and verse 20 in chapter 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. That's talking about the death of Jesus, Jesus dying, redeeming us, purchasing us. So now we belong to him. So glorify God in your body. He didn't say, hey, stop sleeping around. You might, get, you might have pregnancy outside of wedlock. 
He didn't say, hey, stop sleeping around. You might have some problems that you don't, that you don't want to have to deal with. He says, no, 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 no. Don't you know that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit now? Now that you belong to God? He said, don't you know that you are bought with a price and your body does not belong to you? He's reminding them of what Christ has done and now who they are as a result of what Christ has done for them. Hear me on this. When my wife and I were first married, or maybe married for, for six months or so, she started feeling kind of sick, coughing, very sore throat, to the point where it was like hard to eat and that type of thing. And we were thinking that she had a really bad cold, and so we're giving her, you know, cough syrup, whatever cold medicine we could find, and the symptoms went away for a little bit, and then they would come back. Went to the doctor eventually after maybe a week and a half or two weeks, and I believe it was either bronchitis or, or walking pneumonia. I can't remember which one it was that she had, but something that was way much, was much bigger of a problem than we thought that it was originally. So we were trying to treat bronchitis with cough syrup, right? For Paul to try to encourage them out of their sin just by saying, hey, you probably need an accountability group and you need to make sure people understand what you're doing. Or, hey, maybe you need to, maybe you need to try to go to this place instead of that place because then you won't fall into the same type of sin. That's giving cough syrup to somebody who got bronchitis. It might treat the symptom. It ain't doing nothing for the problem. The problem is they're enslaved to sin, so they need the power of God to transform them and free them from slavery to sin by proclaiming the gospel to them. This is why one of the things that we consistently say is we want to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again in our life groups. We want to preach the gospel to each other over and over and over again. We don't just want to give each other good advice because the problem is not that we're not smart enough. The problem is that sin enslaves, so we don't need advice. We need power. We need power to be liberated and walk in the freedom that Christ has already given us. And we need and we, we gain that by communicating to each other and to ourselves all the time, over and over again, the same thing that we've heard a million times. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we need. Accountability is good. Accountability is good. All other things are good. It's okay to take, to take cough syrup if you're also treating the bronchitis or the walking pneumonia or whatever it is. It's okay to do that. That's fine. It's okay to treat the symptom. But you can't, you, you ultimately will never get rid of all the fruit until you deal with the root of the issue. You, the, the best way to deal with the fruit is to cut off the root, right? It's not to just try to take all the fruit off the top. The fruit are going to come back. Maybe it'll come back in a different way or in a different place. You have to deal with the root of the issue. It is slavery, to sin, and we require the power of God if we're ever going to walk in the freedom and deliverance that he offers us. Y'all got me feeling like preaching today. Continue on verse 3, verse 3 and verse 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul says this is of first importance. This is why this is so important that we don't uh, embrace our, our, our cultural tendencies of just bouncing from one new thing to another new thing. Because he's saying this thing that you already know that I'm reminding you of, there is nothing that's more important. They're valuing spiritual gifts. They're caring more about their relationship status than they care about their relationship with God. They're letting division come in the church because they care about their status amongst people. And he's saying, I'm telling you what's most important. I'm not saying that other stuff isn't important. I'm saying of first importance 
is the fact that Jesus died for sin in accordance with the scripture. And on the third day, he got up in accordance with the scriptures. He's saying there's nothing more important. And I want to remind you of this as I bring this letter to a close, Paul is saying to them. Died, buried, raised from the dead. There's nothing more important than this. A lot of people see those things as, you know, elementary, right? One thing I like to say is that the gospel of Jesus isn't the ABC of the Christian faith. It's the A through Z of the Christian faith. And any amount of growth comes from beginning to learn, understand, and embrace how the gospel applies to every other area of our lives. It's not that now I got the gospel, now I need to figure out how to deal with this and feel with this and feel with this. No, no, no. This is, the, this is the thing that deals with everything. And growth as a believer is to understand, okay, well, how does this gospel affect my sex life? How does it affect the way I use my, spend my money? How does it affect the way that I spend my time? How does it affect my relationships with other people? This is how we grow as believers. This is why the gospel is of first importance. Because it affects everything else. It reaches into every corner of our lives. It has implications for every major decision that we make in our lives. It is of first importance. It affects the way you view your work. It affects the way you you handle times of celebration and rejoicing. It affects how you handle times of suffering and grief. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the power of God that saves us and changes everything. And I mean absolutely everything. Paul wants to make sure that they understand and realize that Jesus did actually die and rise from the dead. He wants them to know that this isn't some fairy tale that somebody made up. The death and resurrection of Jesus, it isn't fantasy, it's history. Look at what he writes to them in verse 5. We'll read 5 through 8. So this is after talking about Jesus raised from the dead on the third day in verse 5. And what he appeared, sorry, and that he appeared to Cephas. So he's saying Cephas is the eyewitness. Cephas uh, also is another name you can use to call Peter or refer to Peter. And then he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, right? So we got twelve eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. 500 eyewitnesses, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, which is Jesus' brother. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul says that after Jesus got up from the grave, he appeared to Peter, he appealed to the, the rest of the disciples and apostles. Then he appeared to 500 other brothers at the same time. Then he appeared to Paul. And Paul is saying, I am actually a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I, I don't have a law degree. But I've watched enough CSI and Law and Order to feel like I can comment on the judicial process. Based on my thorough understanding. If you're in a courtroom and trying to figure out the facts and you have 500 eyewitnesses that are present that say this thing happened, open and shut case. It's a wrap. It's done. You got 500 eyewitnesses that are there. Oftentimes you're looking for one strong, credible eyewitness of what happened. Somebody who who didn't gain popularity or esteem or wealth or anything from what they are saying. And you got these 500 and you got the apostles whom say, yes, Jesus was alive and then carry that very message to their grave as they were martyred for what they are saying. Listen, I understand why people lie. People lie to gain. People lie to try to get something, to try to make their life better, to try to make their life easier, to try to gain money or something. People don't lie to make their life worse. 
People don't lie so that they can die and be martyred for the thing that they are lying about. That's not how people work. 500 eyewitnesses, the apostles, the ones who walked most closely with them, pretty much all of them martyred for their faith. Peter hung upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to be, to be killed the same way as my Savior was killed. So crucify me upside down, saying the resurrection is real. You can't find a more credible eyewitness. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the death according to the scriptures, the raise on the third day according to the scriptures, it's not fantasy, it's history. It is real. It happened. I don't need a fairy tale Jesus, right? I need a real Jesus. I don't need a fantasy Jesus. I need a historical Jesus. I don't need a fairy tale resurrection. I need a historical resurrection. Here's why. This week, one of my sons is going to have his 22nd surgery. In Boston. We're going on a plane tomorrow. We're going to get on a real plane. He's going to be, have real cuts in him. He's going to have a real surgery. He has real anxiety and fear right now. I need a real Savior. I need a Savior that is real. I need a resurrection that is real. I don't need a fairy tale. I don't need somebody telling me something just to make me feel good. I need a Jesus who actually got up out of the grave and lets me know that because he got up out of the grave, he can defeat this whole sin problem and all the suffering that's going on in this world. I need a historical, resurrected Lord, and that's what we have because of the grace of God. We have the historical resurrection of Jesus. Paul says it's 500 eyewitnesses. You got to understand, 1 Corinthians was written around 24 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. About 24 years. That is not enough time for a legend story to take place. Because as Paul said, the people who saw are still alive. The people who have been witnesses are still alive. Legends take place over centuries after somebody just telling a tale, it changes over time, and now somebody says this incredible, miraculous thing has happened. It doesn't start in the lifetime of the people who would have been there when it happened. That would be like me coming to y'all and saying, uh, they actually said that O.J. was guilty in the trial. You would have been like, uh, no. You would have said, no. I was around. For some of you, my parents were around. I heard them talking about it. Like, no, that didn't happen. For Paul to, to make up something so, so recent, the, the movement would have never continued on. Listen, there were a lot of people at that time who were Jews who were coming. There were these charismatic leaders. People would follow them. When they died, the movement ended every time. And when Jesus comes in, he gets this following, looks similar. He dies, and it looks like the same thing happens because the disciples are afraid. The disciples are terrified. They're hiding together. They're locking the doors. They, they, they don't know if the people come to crucify them next. Peter, who eventually became the leader of the movement, denied Christ and denied being with him to a child. They were terrified. And then they saw him alive. And then they saw him having defeated death with all power in his hands. And the Holy Spirit comes and transforms them. There is historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is important because I know some of you, you're already hearing people say, especially to our African-American brothers and sisters that are in the room, you're already hearing people saying, you believe in that, that, that message that people use to oppress us? You believe in that? You following that, that Jesus that people tried to use to defend slavery and oppression of black people? Let me tell you something. Conversations like that, they need to be had. We need to be able to talk about it. Let me tell you what's of first importance. Did Jesus get out of the grave or not? We can talk about what Christians have done wrong, what Christians have done right. We can get into all that. But the validity of faith in Jesus depends on one thing. Did he die in accordance with the scriptures like it was said? Did he get up out of the grave on the third day with all power in his hand, having defeated the curse of sin and having defeated death? That is the question. 
All other questions are good. They're fine. They're important. Let's talk about them. There is one question that you use to determine the validity of Christianity. Is Jesus who he said he was? And there is historical evidence that the gospel of Jesus is actually true. And that's what Paul is communicating to his people, to the Corinthians, that he got up. Paul says, I saw him. I got about 500 other people who saw him as well. You can go talk to him is the implication of his letter. Let's continue on. Verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. So Paul points out, I'm an eyewitness. Jesus appeared to me. Now, I, I got in the game later than all the other apostles because I was actually persecuting the church at the time when Jesus came to him. If you're familiar with the story of Paul on the way to Damascus to persecute more Christians, Jesus comes to him. He falls off his horse. This whole thing is great. Now he's an apostle planting churches. I want you to hear. This is very important because I don't think we generally make this connection. I want you to hear the way Paul talks about it changing his life when that happened. Verse 10. For by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Talking about the apostles, he just said he was the least of. He said, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So that verse 11, if I can, if I can get to it really quickly. If you're familiar with the beginning of the letter, when we started in August, they were having these arguments. They were having all these disagreements that were going on. The disagreements were, who should we be following? Paul says, hey, it's about the message. It's not about the messenger. They're like, who, who should we follow? It's about the message, not about the messenger. You believe. doesn't matter who preached. If it was me or someone else, the message is what it is. You place faith in it and you believe. Paul says that meeting Jesus and receiving grace from him has made him into what he is now. He goes on to say, because of the grace of God, this is talking about the favor of God that he did not earn, right? He didn't do anything to deserve it. He earned the, actually the opposite, which would be judgment from God because of his sin. Paul says, because of that grace, he ended up working harder for the mission of God than any of the other apostles. Then he says it wasn't even him doing it. It was like the grace of God had possessed him and was working in and through him that was causing him to work harder than all of the other apostles, He's working like a man possessed. Nothing could stop him. He was persecuted. He was beat up. People lied on him. He was shipwrecked a couple times. He was beat within an inch of his life. He was left for dead. He continues on. Nothing can stop him because of how much he has realized and embraced the grace of God in his life. Even when he was thrown in jail. When he was thrown in jail, they, the, the guards were, he said the guards were learning about the gospel because of his imprisonment. And so he was rejoicing that the gospel was getting out even when he was in prison. Quick question for you. Do you work hard for the mission of God? I didn't ask if you were busy doing a lot of things that have no eternal value at all. I'm saying, do you work hard for the kingdom? I'm saying, do you, have you so realized and understood the grace of God that it causes you to work, that you, that you do things that you normally wouldn't do, that you sacrifice things you normally wouldn't sacrifice, that you continue to press on in times when you normally would stop and give up even when you don't feel like it? Do you work hard for the kingdom of God? Are you about his business? Are you willing to sacrifice a lot of time, comfort, preferences for the sake of of the kingdom. Quick clarification. I'm not saying we work hard to try to earn his favor. That would be the opposite of grace, right? I'm not saying we try to work hard to get God to like us so God will finally approve of us because he sees that we're serious. That's not what we're talking about. Paul says because of the grace that he has received, 
because of the grace that he received, he works hard. We need to realize grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace is opposed to trying to earn the favor and love of God. It is not opposed to you putting forth effort to serve him. Working, sacrificing, serving, because we already know that he likes us and he loves us. Not because we're trying to get him to like us and love us. I want to be real honest with us. I think sometimes we're too quick to use the word, I'm burnt out. When talking about serving for the kingdom, I think sometimes we're too quick to use the word burnout. Here's what I mean. Let's say you're serving in some type of capacity in the first week. You're like, yeah, this is good. I don't really feel like doing it, but I'm going to do it. And then week two, you, you, you dislike it a little bit more. Week three, you don't like it at all. Week, by week four, you're like, I don't think this is for me. I'm feeling burnt out on this. Burnout is not simply, I like doing this less now than I did a month ago. Now, I do want to clarify, there are times when we need to stop and take rest and rejuvenate, and some of us aren't good at resting, and some of us work our tails off for the kingdom of God. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about people in the room, us as Christians who follow God, but yet we actually just don't want to work hard. It's actually a work ethic issue. It's actually an issue. We, we don't like sacrificing and doing things that we don't like to do over and over and over again. And Paul says, I worked harder than anybody. Suffered more probably than anybody, was beaten, was left for dead. Paul says, I worked harder than anyone. It wasn't me. It was the grace of God that is in me. So how do we pursue growth in this, in the kingdom of God? I want us to pay very close attention to what Paul says in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Maybe you're here, you hear me talking about hard work, and you feel like I got to muster up. I got I to, okay, I got to work harder to make myself work harder, right? I got to muster up the strength somehow within myself to work harder. Paul is saying, no, no, it was because of my understanding of the grace of God, and it was like the grace of God was compelling me, possessing me, and working through me. It was because he had encountered God's grace. I believe there's a correlation that's easy for us to miss with what Paul is saying. Remember, just a verse earlier, he said, I, but I'm the least of the apostles because I shouldn't even be counted worthy to be an apostle because I persecuted the church. And then he says, but I worked harder than any of them. I should be the least because I did the worst, but I worked harder than any of them in the middle of it. It's because of the grace of God that I have received. This reminds me of what Jesus said. So Jesus is sitting with, with Pharisees and his disciples, and there's this woman who the only description we have of her is that she's a sinner. She comes up to Jesus. She's so broken over her sin. She's likely a prostitute because when she comes to Jesus, they say that Jesus, if he was really a prophet, he wouldn't even touch her, right? And that's how they kind of view prostitutes at the time. She comes to Jesus. She's so broken over her sin and over all the damage that sin has done that she just starts weeping at his feet. She's just weeping, and she takes this expensive ointment, and she puts it on his feet and anoints his feet. And her tears are so real. Her, her tears are, are flowing so much that his feet are getting wet. So she lets her hair down, and she washes and wipes his feet. And so the Pharisees, they confront Jesus on what's going on. And Jesus, he tells them a parable, but he concludes, he concludes what he's saying with verse 47 in, in Luke chapter 7. This is the, the whole point that Jesus is trying to make to them. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. What's his implication? That the ones who actually understand just how much they are forgiven for are going to work more than those who do not. Those who understand how much they are forgiven for will love God more than those who do not. 
So what's the so you see the correlation that Paul is making. Paul is saying, hey, I was the worst. Nobody was worse than me. I, I persecuted the church. But now, having received the grace of God that is now at work in me, transforming me, that I stand on, having received the gospel of Jesus, Jesus crucified according to the scriptures, Jesus raised from the dead on the third day, Paul realizing how much he doesn't, it's, Paul is not saying, I don't deserve to be a child of God. He said, I don't even deserve to be a servant of God. I don't even deserve the right to be able to work hard for him. I don't even deserve to. I wonder if we realize that it's a privilege even to be able to work hard in the kingdom of God. I wonder if we realize that because of what our sin earned us, we don't even deserve to be in the kingdom to be able to work hard for the king. That it is a privilege and a blessing and an honor to serve at the hand of the king. He says, because, he said, but it's not me. The grace of God within me. I wonder, have we become so dull to the gospel, so dull to the grace that God has extended to us, that, it, that it, it sounds harmful when people challenge us and push us to work hard in his kingdom and continue to serve, because actually we don't realize grace, because actually we don't understand, we don't understand how much we have actually been forgiven of. In just a few minutes here, we'll partake in communion together today. Jesus says that we do this in remembrance of him. I just want us to remember what's of first importance. Let's remember what is of first importance today. Jesus Christ came, died for sin in accordance with the scriptures, was raised from the dead on the third day. And because of that, we are who we are. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll transition into a time of communion. Father, thank you for your word today. Father, keep our hearts from growing dull. Keep our eyes from glazing over at the truths that we have heard over and over and over and over again about you. Keep us from not seeing the, looking at the gospel the same way we look at entertainment, but help us to see it as power that we need every single day of our lives. Will you help us to understand our need for the gospel of our salvation? Will you help us to be able to see Will you help us to be able to understand clearly that, that our greatest enemy, which is sin, has, has, has put shackles on us, and you are desiring for us to walk in the freedom that you have already given us if we have placed faith in you? Father, if there are any here who don't know the newness of life that you offer, if there are any here who do not know your grace, who, who do not understand this message that is of first importance, Father, would you, would you quicken their spirit? Would you make your word so alive, so pressing, so beautiful and glorious to them, Father, that they wouldn't be able to help but to surrender to you and say that I want what you have and I want you. Father, would you make us a church who so grasps your grace that we count it a privilege to be able to work and serve and do whatever it is that you call us to do. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.